Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. I'm Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact. And today, instead of JR, and I know everybody's going to be sad JR is not here, I'm sad, but my sadness is mitigated by the fact that we have guest hosts, Executive Director of Campus Compact of the Mountain West, Stephanie Schooley. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, guys. Since you're here, we thought we'd start with just kind of filling everybody in on um, you and uh, Campus Compact of the Mountain West. You know, what even is that, et cetera? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question since we co-opted the name of an entire region um, (laughs) and uh, work in Colorado and Wyoming and maybe New Mexico moving forward, which is exciting. Um, Yeah, I've been with the Compact for this is my 17th year. So I am one of those, um, I guess, old timers who just refuses to leave. Yeah, um, already. I know. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I just keep coming back. And now I get my 15 minutes of fame with you two. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. So what's the coolest thing that Campus Compact to the Mountain West has going right now? Well, I'm not sure if this is the coolest, but I was um, super excited because Monday and Tuesday, my colleague Katie and I had meetings with a couple of campuses who have not ever been members of Campus Compact. And we had some of the most awesome meetings with the presidents of these two community colleges. And it's been a priority over the last couple of years to try to engage more community colleges in the work that we do. We have about almost 50% of the campuses in this region are community colleges. So it's important for a variety of reasons, but I, I kind of felt like I should just call the week over after these few meetings happened because they were so positive and exciting for us moving forward that I just didn't want anything bad to happen for the rest of the week. So I think I'm going to call it the weekend after this interview is done. Okay. Sounds good. Just end on a high note. Yeah. I just, I want to go out with a bang. That's great. Well, you should definitely point them to, uh, we had a couple of great episodes earlier this fall around community college issues um, with the democracy commitment, as well as a scholar working on not serving non-traditional students. So um, yeah, there's a lot of exciting movement, I think, in that area and some some real potential. Yeah, I agree. We also have um, the the Community College Conference on Service Learning and Community Engagement, which used to be hosted uh, through Livier Cons in Arizona and was kind of on hiatus is going to be re-emerging in 2018 uh, through Red Rocks Community College and some partnerships with other community colleges across the country, but will be hosted here in a suburb of Denver. So it just feels like there's a lot of exciting stuff happening right now with that cohort of campuses we work with, and it brings me great joy. Is Red Rocks Community College near Red Rocks like the music venue? It is. Ooh, it's just okay. West Town. Yep. All right. I'm coming to that one. <laughs> Great. Well, there's a good reason to go. <laughs> Among the other reasons, of course. Yes. But yes. Um, awesome. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, so our interview for this time is a little bit different than our standard interview in a pretty exciting way. And I'm just going to turn it over to Andrew to talk a little bit about who he interviewed and some of the, I guess, the larger context of it. Yeah, so the the context for the interview was that we hosted here in Boston 200 of our Newman Civic Fellows from across the country. So those are student fellows. Uh, And again, they represent the broad diversity of our network, students from two-year and four-year institutions, graduate students uh, from all across the country, an extremely diverse group in every respect, an incredibly vibrant and energetic group. So the conference was fantastic, but we took advantage of their being here uh, to sit down with two of our Newman Civic Fellows, uh, Natural Breeden and Lindsay Earle, both of whom are involved in work uh, that connects with homelessness and housing insecurity in different ways. And I was joined for the interview kind of as an interviewing partner by our VISTA, who is here in our national office, Katie Vogt, she's here through the VISTA project of uh, Campus Compact of Southern New England. And uh, the the work really focuses on housing insecurity and food insecurity and other poverty-related issues facing students in higher education and on their pathways to higher education. So the the four of us had a conversation, and I found it really interesting. Um, And again, it was part of this larger 
conference where we bring the students together, um, which is just an amazing thing in itself because they're such a great group and so committed to their communities and to strengthening uh, our country and to thinking about how they can work together to do that. They're also, you know, we had a, a panel at one point, one of the panelists just asked the students to raise their hand if they were first gen students, first generation of their family to go to college. At least half the hands in the room went up. Uh, it's, a, it's a group that really is committed to opening up pathways of opportunity for communities that historically have not had opportunities within higher education and more broadly in our society. And they are just so fired up uh, that it's it's great to spend time with them. They got to participate in the Senate simulation that the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate does. This year, we focused on the, uh, the Farm Bill, which, as probably many of you know, includes all of the nutrition support programs across the country. So that was an interesting thing for them to dig into. It also happened to coincide with an event at the JFK Library and Museum, which is next door uh, to the Edward M. Kennedy Institute. They're celebrating the 100th anniversary of John Kennedy's birth. There was a big TEDx event, and our students got to go over and hear some of those talks. And a little uh, fun part for me, I got to give one of those talks. So I did a TEDx as part of that event, which was uh, really fun to do and uh, will eventually be up online. And when it is, I will promote it shamelessly on this podcast. Well, that sounds awesome. So let's uh, jump right to that interview. It's my pleasure to be joined this morning by Lindsay Earl. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Natural Breeden. Good morning. Thanks for having me, too. And Katie Vogt. Hello. How are you? I'm doing quite well. <laughs> and uh, we are here with two of our Newman Civic Fellows, Lindsay and Natural, and our AmeriCorps VISTA here in the National Office, Katie, to talk a little bit about the kinds of work that folks are working on and just to uh, have a conversation about engagement and working particularly on issues of housing insecurity, homelessness. So, Lindsay, I want to start with you. Mm -hmm. And to begin with, just ask a little bit about how homelessness came to be an issue that you're focusing your academic study and your practical work on. Yeah. I think I was really privileged in my life that my parents really got me involved in volunteering at a young age. And so I remember for certain holidays, we'd go to homeless shelters and help um, prep in the kitchen and also serve the folks that were there. And so I became pretty interested in homelessness at that point in time, just because it blew a lot of my perceptions of the homeless. And then I have kind of a personal connection that got me interested in doing research surrounding homelessness. Um, for multiple reasons. So I was working for city government um, and I got interested in how certain ordinances are created that specifically target the homeless population. And then I did an AmeriCorps term as well where we were doing a project cleaning up vacant homeless encampments. So I worked pretty closely with both police officers, park rangers, and homeless services um, surrounding that. And I did notice some abrasive treatment of the homeless at that point in time. And then probably the most interesting thing that happened was um, we were camping at one point in AmeriCorps and we were perceived as homeless and so we had some harassment uh, towards my AmeriCorps team and we actually heard someone in the middle of the night saying, oh, I hate the homeless, I'm gonna burn down these tents. And so we had to emergency evacuate at that point. So then I really, it was a very personal connection to me, that stigma. And how has that, so you're, you're now doing, part of your academic study is focused on that. Can you tell us a little bit about the program that you're in and, and how that research fits into that? Yeah, so I'm in a really interesting program. Um, it's the Stevenson Center for Community and Economic Development. And then I'm also part of the Department of Sociology and Anthropology as a cultural anthropologist. And so it's kind of an interdisciplinary program. The prerequisite is that you've done 1,700 hours of service in the past. And then, so my, my education is kind of a coupling of anthrop anthropology as well as community economic development. So I've taken classes in all different disciplines. Um, and it kind of ties into my research because my research is also very interdisciplinary as well. So talk to us a little bit about the, the specific research you're doing and, and how it connects to those experiences you had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm looking at the entire system of homeless encampment evictions and kind of the forces that play into that. So I'm looking at occupational culture, specifically with police officers, city council members, and homeless services workers. And it's something in anthropology called studying up. And so I'm studying powerful players that affect vulnerable populations rather than the vulnerable themselves. 
And so that's strategic because I want to see what actually influences and drives the encampment evictions. And so I'm doing ethnography, which means I try to immerse myself as possible within all of these different occupational groups. So doing ride-alongs with police officers, attending public meetings, um, as well as volunteering with homeless services, doing homeless point and count every January, and doing interviews as well as surveys. So I'm really doing mixed methods to try to triangulate my, my results. And then at the very end, I would like to create a best practices flowchart so that people can kind of navigate these difficult situations when they encounter homeless encampments and what do you do and where do you go from there. So I'm hoping that this will provide people with a resource to approach those situations in the best way possible. So I know that, you know, anthropologists have spent a lot of time thinking about the questions of how to remain, retain some critical distance on a situation while also empathizing and seeing from the perspective of, and I think it's really interesting, so I didn't know this term studying up, it makes a lot of sense. How do you, given that it sounds like you came into this with a strong uh, kind of sense of alignment with people experiencing homelessness and now you're kind of taking the perspective of the people whose behavior you think needs to change, it sounds like. So can you just talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most interesting components of my research is that the people that I am spending time with are some of the people that have this abrasive treatment of the homeless at times. And it's, it's very interesting ethically because I find myself empathizing and sympathizing with them a lot of the time. And my hypothesis going into it was that city officials and police officers might have a negative perception of the homeless, and even more so maybe than homeless services or the general public. And I don't have any um, results that I can say yet, but what I'm finding is that everybody has stigma towards the homeless, regardless of what sector you're in and who you are. It's just something that our society teaches us. And so I find more so that police officers, for instance, the difference between them and somebody else is that they're actually incited to do these evictions and they're told to do so. With city council members, the public calls upon them in instances of chronic nuisance or trespassing, and they're incited to create these ordinances to affect the homeless. And so it becomes a lot more complicated when you actually start talking to all these different people in like the hard places that their job puts them in. And so it's really not as straightforward as you think. Um, but yeah, it creates a very interesting circumstance for me in studying up. And what's the, the product that you're hoping to produce through this research? Yeah, so like I said, I'm hoping to create that best practices flowchart. But another thing that I'm trying to do as well is look at jail data. And so I'm looking specifically at chronically homeless individuals I call frequent flyers. And so they're the people that are breaking these ordinances and they're being repetitively incarcerated. And that's actually very costly for taxpayers. Um, it's about $40 a night in the town that I'm studying this in. And so I'm trying to quantify whether it's more cost effective to actually house these people or just keep incarcerating them. And this has been done in the past, and they found that it's actually cheaper just to house people. But it seems like such a hard thing for people to kind of grasp. And so I want to reaffirm that by doing that study once more. Excellent. Uh, all right. So we discovered uh, that Katie and Natural have some uh, in interests and comments, some overlap. So I'm going to turn it over to Katie to take up the conversation. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so Natural, I'd really love to hear about how you first started getting involved in um, working with students that are facing housing insecurity and basic needs and security on your campus. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Whenever I went to UNCP, I transferred in from Winston-Salem State in 2013, and I was lucky enough to come into contact with my director, Christy Poteet. Um, from that point, she got me involved with our organization, Office for Community and Civic Engagement on campus, so getting students involved both in the community and on the um, campus. And from what I found, um, Christy, she got me involved with our Care Resource Center, which is our food pantry and professional cl clothing closet on campus. And from there, my position, it went from being the assistant there to going up to be the manager. Just by being at the center, I've recognized that there are homeless individuals within the community, within the Pembroke community, within Robinson County, coming from a very poor community, Fairmont, which is in North Carolina. It was a very poor community as well. So I've kind of been in contact with the homeless, but really looking at the Care Resource Center, seeing that community members face it. And then in 2017 of August, we 
conducted, no, in 2016 of August, sorry, we conducted a study um, of homeless students on campus. Um, one of the interns at the Care Resource Center, she went around campus and she distributed surveys, and it showed that about one in seven students face homelessness on campus. From that point, Christy and I, we partnered with a, a community partner, which is Brent Swamp Baptist Association, and we organized a homeless shelter with them. So now we have a homeless shelter open to students. Students are welcome to stay up to six weeks at the homeless shelter, and I work with them on getting them resources in the community, whether it's trying to find a job or just trying to better themselves while they're in this situation, kind of to take that burden off of them and see what I can do just so they can have a better life going through college and then just going through classes and everything else. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so can you speak a little bit about the backgrounds and the circumstances of these students? I think a lot of people may not even mm -hmm. understand that students could be homeless or housing yeah. insecure. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering what that looks like um, as somebody who's a manager at the care center. Absolutely. So whenever I had the same perception, I always thought, well, how are college students facing homelessness, how are we hungry? Because we get financial aid, we get refund checks, how is this happening? Well, from what I could see and what I've observed, many students are often prideful whenever they might be in need of food, but also just from hearing stories at the homeless shelter, students have came in because parents kicked them out, they were staying at home. Whenever we got devastated with Hurricane Matthew, students were faced with trying to figure out where they're going to go, how are they going to get to and from campus if they're living two hours away. Um, many students just financial aid didn't come through as soon as they thought. Housing messing up. They're not having trouble. They're having trouble trying to get into their housing. Um, so so many stories that I've heard and just trying to see how I could help, but also just noticing that many students don't have the same resources that, as everyone else. And it's often assumed that, yeah, college students are supposed to have it figured out when that's absolutely not the case. Um, like I said, many are prideful whenever they come in, but however, whenever they do come through our care resource center, whenever they do go through the homeless shelter, they flourish. For the ones who have been through the shelter, and we had, we've served about 12 students this far, they've gotten the jobs on campus that they were looking for. They've gotten into the housing on campus that they were needing, and they've gotten a chance to kind of wait until they got their refund checks to be able to get the things and the basic necessities necessities that they need. Wow, wow. So how do students on your campus learn about the Care Resource Center? Is mm -hmm. this part of the campus culture that's accepted, that mm -hmm. this is a place where you can go? Um, how, do, how do you advertise, so to speak, your services? So with the Care Resource Center, like I said, that's our food pantry and professional clothing closet. So with that, it's a lot of advertisement, a lot of marketing, a lot of word of mouth. Um, community especially, we're open to students, community members, and faculty and staff on campus. So they're very interested in just sharing this information with others, especially our community members. Um, whenever it comes to the students, same thing, the word of mouth, really trying to reach out, um, offer that environment where they go back and tell their friends about it, and then their friends tell someone about it. And even with the emergency homeless shelter, with that, since we've partnered with this agency, the Burnt Swamp Baptist Association, we just really, um, it's a referral-based system. So students, whenever they're interested in just trying to get these housing options or wanting to know more or find themselves in situations where they don't have housing, they'll contact my director, Christy Poteet, and then she'll get them set up with me and coordinate them coming on into the shelter. But even with that, that's something that we're trying to get out there because many students don't know that this resource is available to them. So really just trying to, that word of mouth, trying to get more marketing out there just so they can know that this is here and if you need it we're here to help you absolutely um can you speak a little bit to how you think um institutions in higher education can address this issue more um in helping students meet their basic needs today I think other um, institutions they could definitely look into maybe starting food pantries or just kind of observing and calculating and creating surveys just to kind of get that idea because for us at UNCP we didn't know. I can say I didn't know um, and just by starting those surveys just to get an idea that really helped even if it's just um, coming more into terms or being more with the college students the institutions could have more um, maybe programs available for them even if there's something small just to kind of help them um, take that baby step if they need it versus going into a food pantry or trying to create one um, but just making the these issues known on campus, even if it comes to having those conversations, which are often difficult, because many people don't want others to know, oh, I don't have the means to get adequate housing, or I don't have the means to get my basic needs. So actually having these conversations might be the first step for many institutions. Great, great. And I guess um, one of my final questions is, how can students on campus recognize the needs of their 
their fellow students um, and become more involved in creating these resources and programming? I would say definitely if any institutions have any type of offices on campus that are based around um, getting involved in the community, whether it's just the volunteer opportunities, I say take advantage of those because that was my first step into what volunteering actually meant and how impactful it is. Um, But just through that, kind of volunteering with other students, networking with them, um, fostering relationships within the campus community, and just really having those difficult conversations, as I mentioned, um, because I don't think that will come up into a conversation initially, but I also think that if one student might have the resources or the means of helping another, therefore just giving that helping hand um, just to start that conversation and just to help them out whenever they might need it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So both of your stories made me think of a lot of practical questions that Mm -hmm. I wondered Uh, about. So maybe, Lindsay, let's start with you. It sounds like you needed the cooperation of a lot of, or you have needed and probably still do, of a lot of city officials, police department officials. And you were starting with a position that was maybe a little bit critical of those folks. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, just really on the ground, nuts and bolts, how did you get them engaged, get the permission you needed to ride along and observe and all those things that you needed from them? Yeah, I was really nervous about this at (laughs) first because... As studying up, I'd be studying people more powerful than me. So how am I supposed to get these people in a room to interview with me or have a ride along in general? But what I found is that people are really receptive and willing to help out, which has been fantastic. And even if I say that I'm doing critical research or I give them an informed consent form that completely lays out what I'm doing, they're still willing to help. Um, specifically with police officers as well, they're like, hey, we're having kind of a legitimacy crisis here, and, like, maybe your research can help us out because we want to show you that, like, we do care about the homeless. And um, a lot of them advocate body cameras. Um, There's this one officer that I rode in a car with, and he had a bunch of winter coats in the back. And when he encountered an unsheltered homeless individual on the street, he gave them those coats. And so... A lot of different um, kind of stereotypes about those professions have been completely blown up for me just by their simple willingness to help me in my research. Um, Even the mayor, for instance, has approached me and said, hey, I'm interested in the research that you're doing. How can I help you out with this? Which I never expected to happen. Natural, can you say a little bit about how the work that you're doing is funded? Like who's paying the, the costs and how does this work? Um, so how it works is my boss, Christy Poteet, she has a partnership with the Burnt Swamp Baptist Association building. So from them, um, she pays them rent monthly for me to stay there and manage the shelter. Um, so that's pretty much where the funding comes in for that. So out of, out of university mm-hmm, funds? Out of yes, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And and how, oh, go ahead. No, mm-hmm. Katie, go ahead. And how did, I, I'm not sure if you know this, but how did your boss facilitate that relationship and mm-hmm. that, that partnership with the community mm-hmm. organization? Because I know in a lot of my research mm-hmm. when talking to administration and people and programs on college and university campuses, mm-hmm. they want to start these partnerships. They mm-hmm. want to have the resources and kind of come together, but they don't know even how to initiate that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what she did was she just, since we're all about fostering those relationships with our community partners through my organization on campus, it was really um, taking the results that she found in the survey and giving that to the community partners at Burnt Swap Baptist Association and just showing them, like, this is what's happening on campus. Because if she would have went in there and just said, hey, we have students on campus who are homeless, they probably would have looked at her and said, okay, well, where's the data? We need more. And that's what she did. So from the surveys and from the results, she went back and she said, okay, this is why we have homeless students and this is where we need help. And from there, the relationship was fostered and they were willing and able enough to help us and get us started up with just offering their space, which wasn't being used. Um, They used the front just for like the AA Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, but the backside of the house, it wasn't used at all. So actually noticing that this is a a free space that we could use here that's close enough to the campus community that they can just walk across the street if they need to for classes or what have you. It was really about just kind of creating that relationship with them and seeing where they could help and how they could help. One, I have a, a very different kind of question. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people, their experience, wherever they're positioned around homelessness, mm-hmm. has a lot to do with shame. Mm-hmm. You know, you were talking about kind of the pride of students not wanting to say, I need something. I also mm-hmm. think people who are not experiencing homelessness, you know, here in Boston, we have many people experiencing homelessness mm-hmm. on the streets of the city. And I think people, passing people, mm-hmm. experience shame. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. doing what should mm-hmm. I be? And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering what. When you think about your own personal attitude toward Mm -hmm. people experiencing homelessness, 
how, how do you think about that? Like, how do you look at people in that position? What is your your feeling, your sense of your relationship to that? Maybe start with you, Natural. Um, I would say my sense of relationship, um, just growing up in my, my community in Fairmont, North Carolina, um, I've always... There, I've known that there was some homelessness around the community. Um, I can definitely say just going through my undergraduate as social work and then now in my master's of social work, actually recognizing that this is an issue, but also learning that any biases that I had just coming into contact with them and just learning how to change them when I might come into contact with the homeless. Um, just learning, too, that they don't ask to be in those situations. Oftentimes, that's just kind of the way the cards are dealt. But just from recognizing that they are in these situations, not diminishing them for where they are, but trying to build them up and to help them in any way that I possibly can. Lindsay? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question, and I like that you articulated it that way. I think maybe Mm -hmm. it's something mulling around in my brain I hadn't been able to say, but I think that shame comes into play both for the homeless individuals as well as myself at times Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to be an advocate for this population, Mm -hmm. but currently I'm living in Houston, and homelessness is so vast there, mm-hmm. especially because of the warm weather. Mm-hmm. So every time I drive, I probably have three or so people knock on my window and ask for money. And I don't have enough to give to every single person. And so I end up being the person that kind of looks away and ignores mm-hmm. that situation. But here I am doing this mm-hmm. research. And so it seems very contradictory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. And if I might add just to what you said, Lindsay, um, mm-hmm. I'm not from the area. I'm not from Boston whatsoever, so I flew to get here. However, when I was coming up here just trying to find the place where we were conducting our podcast, I actually had someone to come up to me, and he said, Miss Twice, and I'm walking. I'm like, okay, I'm not from the area. I'm just going to keep it moving, keep it moving. But he was very persistent, and he said it again. So I turned around, and I, I looked, and I said, okay, how are you today? And then that's when he went about just asking, you know, do you have any spare change or anything that I could use so I can go get me something to eat? And he was telling me about the health issues that he had but same thing for you Lindsay just saying it's hard and it's difficult because at first I did ignore because for one I'm not from the area I wasn't sure who you are so I'm just going to keep it moving however um I found myself in a situation where it was difficult just to kind of say no because of you know just him asking for money and that much I didn't have on me at the time so can I say it was difficult it really was and just to see even when he was waiting on the sidewalk someone else passed him and made a very smart comment towards him and he really fired back at that so just seeing that and seeing how it really goes back into that stigma how it really goes back into how people already have these preconceived notions about the homeless that was really something for me to see and experience. Lindsay, I guess following along that idea of what natural experience this morning, I work here. <laughs> here <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and I come in contact with the same people every single day, mm-hmm. sitting in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess mm-hmm. for in terms of this flowchart that you're talking about, is there going to be any element in how civilians um, should mm-hmm. be interacting? And if, mm-hmm. if not, like just off the cuff, if you have any suggestions for how to talk to people who may be mm-hmm. facing some difficult situations and approach you regularly, um, how, how would you suggest dealing with that? Mm-hmm. So the, I'm thinking right now that the best practices flowchart is going to be specifically geared towards police officers. Mm-hmm. However, I do kind of have some tips um, of navigating those encounters that you might have mm-hmm. on the street. What I started doing is I have a little resource guide that I keep in my bag, and whenever I encounter those individuals, if I don't have money, or even if I do, Mm -hmm. I give them one of those resource guides as well, because a lot of people are just simply not aware of the Mm -hmm. resources that are out there, or maybe they don't have a phone, or they don't have internet access Mm -hmm. to look up the resources. So when I was actually driving to the airport on the way here, I was walking to my car, and a man stopped me mm-hmm. for me that he was homeless, and I didn't have one of those resource guides. But I was like, oh, please, like, look up the shelters in the area. And he's like, I can't look it up. I don't have a computer. I don't have internet access. But at least if you have a physical copy mm-hmm. of it, it's something they can keep on them until they can get to a library mm-hmm. or something like that. But another thing that I've been told repeatedly as well is just, just say, hey, how are you? Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes that's what people want more than anything mm-hmm. is just acknowledgement mm-hmm. of like, hey, like you're a person and mm-hmm. I acknowledge that you exist because so often they're dejected in their daily life. It's interesting. I've um, asked friends of mine who've worked in the homeless services area, like, what, what do you recommend doing? And my friends have basically said they think you should take the resources and donate them to organizations that you know are doing effective work supporting people living on the street because that way you can be sure it's being channeled in the, in the best way. 
And I do that, and I know it's also kind of a defense mechanism, right? It's like, it's a way for me to say, this is how I'm going to handle this, so I don't have to think it out every single time. And one of the things I've thought a lot about is, I just think we have, it's one of the few kinds of injustices that is just right in our face. And again, for those Mm -hmm. of us who work here every day, live in larger cities, Mm -hmm. whatever the context may be, it's, you know, there are other forms of injustice that are going on all the time, Mm -hmm. but we just don't see them in the same way. And I think it's a good thing that we're fundamentally uncomfortable with being confronted with injustice. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I think it's why sometimes, yeah, people get angry mm-hmm. at the individuals because they don't like that this is happening, but they don't know mm-hmm. where to challenge it. When you guys think about your longer term, your own futures, how, how is this work going to inform what you keep doing? What are you looking toward beyond? Maybe start with natural. I look forward to, as soon as I'm finishing up with my degree, just going to other organizations that I could just volunteer with or even following up with like VISTA positions because I'm very interested in working with the homeless. That's on my list of things to do in my life. Um, So I'm very interested in doing that. I hope to, I don't know, start a homeless shelter one day. That's been the talk of my town. Um, Maybe Uh trying to get one of those started because, like I said, we recognize that this is an issue, even if it's one person saying, hey, I need somewhere to stay because I am homeless. That's a big deal. Um, So maybe maybe just trying to start that in my community, but I really just want to get more hands-on experience and do more research um, and just see what other initiatives I can come up with or create just to kind of combat this issue, starting in my community and then furthering out into other communities as well. Lindsay, what are your thoughts about where you're heading Mm -hmm. in this work? Well, first of all, good for you, Natural. Thanks, Lindsay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so for me, I'm really interested in classism in general, and I think it's such a pervasive force Mm -hmm. in our society. Um, I'm also very interested in how to reduce classism Mm -hmm. and its effects. And what I found to be true in my life of doing AmeriCorps and other volunteering is the more contact I have with these populations that may be considered lower class, the less stigma I have. And so I'm interested in how to create volunteer opportunities Mm -hmm. that bridge the gap between people of different classes. Mm And so whether that means founding a nonprofit or becoming mm-hmm. a program man- manager, volunteer coordinator at a nonprofit mm-hmm. that has volunteer opportunities, I think that that could really do wonders for mm-hmm. our society. Or even if it was kind of expected mm-hmm. that people take a gap year, like a service year after they graduate from high school or this mandatory community service hours, I think there needs to be more opportunities, especially for young adults. Katie, I'm going to turn the tables on you a little bit. So uh, Lindsay just mentioned the possibility of a, a service year as a central part of this. And Lindsay, your own AmeriCorps experience is part of your story. So Katie, you're here with us as a VISTA right now working on these issues of housing and security among students in particular. And I'm wondering, I know you just attended a couple weeks ago the Real College Conference down at Temple University organized by Sarah Goldrick Rabb, who's been a real leader in research on this issue. What are some things, when you think about what higher education institutions could be doing, uh, what, what's on that list? I think I think there are a variety of things that they could be doing, but I also would will preface everything I say by the fact that in addressing homelessness and housing insecurity for students, it requires a lot of collaboration mm-hmm. from a variety of different perspectives. And the first thing that seems to be needed, absolutely, as Natural was saying, is have the data. If if there are faculty or students that are saying that they're experiencing this or they know somebody that's experiencing this, and you want to approach. Um, the people who have the power and the resources, if you don't have the data, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, but in addition to having the data and ultimately getting a survey out and proving that there is a need, it varies depending on the type of institution. So for example, community colleges and two-year institutions that don't have on-campus housing, they're, they most likely, likely will be reaching out to community organizations in a way that four-year institutions don't necessarily have to as much just because of the on-campus housing options. Um, but something that definitely is notable for people who are looking for housing in on on campus or off campus is the need for having that security deposit um, and the money. And I know that that obviously comes with a lot of other issues and a lot of other conversations and logistically working that out, whether it's through loan, loan programs, whether it's through moving back security deposit due dates, um, issuing financial aid earlier. Um, but that's a very tangible way, and it's also more of a systems policy way um, that institutions can really start addressing the issue. Um, and then in terms of more one-on-one um, programming that can help students, 
I think it oftentimes stems towards meeting the students and having those conversations um, and figuring out what the students need by listening to the students that do come forward. Mm -hmm. um, I think oftentimes in a lot of these issues, there's this idea of, okay, well, we need to research that. We need to figure out the programs and the policies ourselves. That's going to help. But in the end, if you have a student there that's willing to say, I'm struggling with this, and they'll be able to list every single mm -hmm. challenge and way that maybe programs and policies that do exist aren't really meeting their needs. So I think that was the thing that I took the most from, from that conference, is that this needs... If this can, this needs to be a student-led movement, and particularly students that face housing insecurity and basic needs insecurity. Big, big challenges. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that was just driven home by everything everybody's just said, the degree to which so many people, students and others, in America now are, you know, it's kind of a, a sort of, you know, hackneyed thing to say, or but one paycheck away, one, you know, car uh, accident that requires repairs or one dental problem that requires an expensive procedure from, you know, just being in a real disastrous situation. Uh, and so whether it's our institutions of higher education or our public systems, uh, it's, you know, we've created a situation that's very hard to respond to. So many people on the brink and the possibility of just being in a really tough situation. Mm -hmm. You guys are both here in Boston for our annual Newman Civic Fellows Conference. It's about to get started. I'd just love to close out. Uh, any thoughts you have about what you're hoping to get out of this weekend? We'll have about 200 uh, Newman Civic Fellows from around the country here in Boston. Uh, so, Lindsay, what, what are some things you're hoping for this weekend? I'm excited, and I don't really know what to expect, but I'm super excited to meet the other Newman Civic Fellows because we'll probably have a lot of interesting things to talk about and just generally ways to collaborate on different initiatives that we're taking. It seems like we're all very motivated mm -hmm. and in the community, so I'm excited for that. Naturally. Uh, yeah, definitely the same as Lindsay. Very excited. Um, networking opportunities and just having conversations with like-minded people. Um, we're here for the same things, doing different things in our communities, on campus. So just to gather ideas, collaborate, and get to know other fellows. Very exciting. Excellent. Well, I, th I think all of that will happen. So I, th I think we can <laughs> deliver. Uh, so that's great. Well, we uh, are, first of all, I congratulate you both on being Newman Civic Fellows. And uh, really appreciate the work that you're doing in your own communities and your willingness to come here to Boston and share some of these ideas both with the other fellows and with our audience on the Compact Nation podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Great interviews, Andrew. I wonder if you could just um, share a little bit more. I don't think we got where the students are attending college. Yeah, so both Natural and Lindsay are graduate students. Natural is at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. Uh, she is in the master's program in social work. And I think Lindsay talked a little bit about uh, the program she's in, and she is at Illinois State University. Uh, and yeah, so both doing obviously really interesting work at the graduate level. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, their work was very sophisticated. And I'll also say it just went in two very different directions. And that was really great and interesting to, to me because I think one of the most important things for people to see and understand is just that we need to address all these things at lots of different levels to create change. So you've got someone who's immediately finding housing for students and someone who's really researching some of the systemic issues. And both are so critical to figuring out what we can do on, on some of these important issues of homelessness and housing. Yeah, it was powerful hearing both of them speak. I, I was really struck by when Natural was talking about on her campus, some of the challenges around finding resources for students who are facing some of these social circumstances like hunger and homelessness and the perception that I think is fairly broad that if you're in college and you're a college student, that that you are automatically privileged and perhaps exempt from some of those circumstances. And it made me think of, uh, we had a, a Mission Continues fellow that served in our office. And because we don't work directly with college students that much, we're working sort of more peripherally with campus folks. It was an interesting experience. He's a post 9-11, recently separated Marine. And and through the GI Bill benefits, um, he was receiving his tuition to go to a campus here in Denver. And during the course of his volunteerism in our office, we found out that he was living in his car. And it 
and I just, it was so shocking to me because I hadn't even thought to ask or to figure out if there were other challenges or other resources that he needed. And, and it all had to do with what Natural mentioned, that sometimes benefits come in at different times and there are these gaps in how students are able to survive and thrive in their higher education experience. So it, it was, it, I thought it was, um, it was just a helpful reminder that these are issues that are not just in the communities around our campuses, but on campuses themselves. Yeah, I think it's been interesting. I think, uh, you know, some people may be familiar with the research uh, led by Sarah Goldrick Rabb. Uh, she was at Wisconsin and founded the Wisconsin Hope Lab, and now she's at Temple University. Uh, and she, you may have seen, but she just won uh, this award called the Grawmeyer Award from the University of Louisville for education. It was a $100,000 award that she then immediately donated to this fund that she has helped start. I think it's called the FAST Fund, but I may have the name wrong, which is to support uh, college students facing poverty. Um, but I, I think, you know, my sense is partly because of her research and other organizing efforts, I, I think the particular role, as Stephanie just referred to, of veteran students and the particular challenges they're facing and the kind of particularly shameful aspect of our not more effectively providing uh, opportunities for them. There is a growing understanding, I think, of this issue and of the, the challenge that it faces but it, or that it presents. I guess what's so strange to me about this moment in our country right now is one of the ways we somehow don't think about all this is the extraordinary potential we are leaving on the table as a country. So mm -hmm. as people are kind of discussing various ways to try to jumpstart an economy that I think, as we know, in general, has actually been growing reasonably well, but we also know has left lots of people out, the fact that we have people who are in every respect prepared for higher education, who have gotten themselves there, often against great odds, and yet we don't put in the small investment to ensure that they can simply be housed and fed so that they can pursue that education, become more productive people who can contribute more in an in information economy like this. That is actually, I, I kind of I understand the politics behind it in certain respects, and it is also so baffling to me when you're confronted with these individual stories. Well, yeah. and often we can come up with solutions that are not that difficult. And I think we've seen good examples of that. I think what Natural has been able to do is a great example, you know, a space that wasn't being used for any other purpose. This is not a significant new expense. I've seen member campuses look at when residence halls are open because, right, we assume that students can go home during breaks and things like that. So you close the residence hall, save some money, and keeping it open for some students is in some cases not an incredibly difficult thing to do. I have um, one of our member campuses that has an emergency fund for students. Again, not terribly large amounts of money, but I think what you see is that very temporary housing issues and pretty small amounts of money, you know, a $250 car, uh, maintenance issue, you know, a $500 health bill can make the difference between whether someone finishes, finishes college or it doesn't. And Andrew, like you said, this isn't charity. We need those people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the areas in which, you know, when we convene folks around sort of specific issues like hunger and homelessness where campuses are able to say this is how we've been able to manage this issue or being able to highlight programs that they've implemented on their campuses. We've seen a lot of adoption across our region um, of some of those best practices and it's one of those things that's hard to quantify as an intermediary like Campus Compact but is one of the most powerful things that I've seen in this work is that best practice sharing that has an immediate effect on a group of students that is, is such a fundamental resource um, that it's it's sort of mind-blowing that some of those small fixes like you're talking about Emily aren't just immediately implemented. Yeah but it's a it's a paradigm shift and I, I you know, it particularly is great to me to see students taking the lead because I think it's a paradigm shift they've already made um, or, or never even had to make because they just have a different understanding of the college student population than, than maybe folks who grew up, grew up in a different time or went to college in a different time um, than what we see now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would, you know, one of the things that I was really struck by during this conference of our Newman Civic Fellows is there, you know, I think there's such um, concern about students not being committed to 
values of free speech, et cetera. And these are legitimate questions. One of the things I was struck by with these students is their willingness to, I mean, the only way I can think about it is to sort of lean into tension and to raise difficult issues in ways that are extremely challenging and then also to be willing to listen to people after posing difficult questions. And I think we don't give them enough credit for that. I think many of us who say we're interested in free speech are actually not that interested in difficult conversations. And I think it gives them an opportunity to kind of take on difficult issues in a way that, you know, things that we've sort of swept to one side because it's inconvenient to think about or whatever. I, I, it left me with uh, great confidence that they will mess things up less than we have. <laughs> <laughs> There's always hope. <laughs> well, let's, let's end that discussion on a hopeful note then and uh, go right into a little bit of what we like to call pop culture corner. So um, I will take the liberty of starting and uh, mine is something that just came out today, I believe. Time has named their person of the year after a, a little bit of controversy over what that might be. And it is the silence breakers. It is women and others. It's not just women, but um, who have spoken out about sexual assault and sexual harassment and really started the conversation we are having right now. And one thing that I just read is um, there are, I think, five women pictured on the cover. There is also, if you look in the lower right corner, just someone's elbow and that's really meant to represent all the women who have spoken out but can't necessarily do so in a way that um, they're publicly identified who don't have the power and stature and security to be able to speak publicly um, but have had these experiences are reporting things speaking anonymously that kind of thing and I just found that to be really powerful um, the whole Me Too moment has been, I think, very interesting, sparked a lot of good conversations. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just wanted to bring that up, make sure people saw that cover. Some really interesting articles. Sidebar, Taylor Swift is on the cover, and I don't know how to feel about that, but we don't really have to get into it. <laughs> I don't want to piss off the Swiftians or... Is that, that's a thing? Swifters? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just making That, that is up. a cleaning product. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, to be clear. Uh, I have no official <laughs> position, nor does Campus Compact, about Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I so I saw a little bit. I mean, I looked at that uh, the piece online, and, and uh, even just the short part that I was able to read uh, is very powerful. And I, yeah, I was given the possible uh, persons of the year for time. I thought that was a smart, bold, and significant thing to do. The, the pop culture thing I was going to mention um, connects in a certain way. I have been uh, watching the second season of a show called Broadchurch on Netflix. It's a British police investigation kind of show uh, that's very good in a lot of ways. This season, uh, the crime at the center is a rape. And I'm, I think about three episodes in uh, – I would say it's so I don't know where it's headed and, you know, whatever. I don't know what's going to happen, obviously. But the way the the show has presented and investigated some of the issues surrounding the way various characters respond to the rape allegation, the way that some of the police officers do, uh, the way people talk about it sort of away from the official authorities, et cetera. It's really interesting and and I thought useful and I think uh, a useful starting point for lots of conversations. And I think it's coincidence that it came out at this moment because I'm sure that it's been in production for a long time. But just in this context of uh, of, you know, this kind of sharpening of attention on this issue and the holding to account of people, uh, it seemed uh, to me really well timed and I think could just be an interesting thing for people to talk about uh, in this context. Uh, and, and I will say, I mean, I think for me, you know, watching some people whose work I admire or who I respect in their fields, whether in politics or in the arts, uh, kind of be held to account. I think it's incredibly important. And uh, I, I just hope it keeps happening and that, you know, there are more and more people on notice in, in all, all domains that if you treat people uh, in ways that are fundamentally disrespectful, in ways that abuse your authority, your power, uh, you will pay a price for it. 
Yeah, and it's good to hear about a show handling sexual assault well, since that's not maybe typically the case. And as a Game of Thrones fan, <laughs> oh boy, it's really been done poorly in some cases. <laughs> it has been in cases where there are a lot of people that are watching it. <laughs> yes, and, and yeah. making impressions. Um, Stephanie? Yeah, mine um, relates tangentially to yours. I was listening to the interview with the Newman Civic Fellows and thinking about of the pathways and the language around engagement, how folks are getting to where they're going. And I was reminded of, um, there's a book that you all may have read, but it's called Citizen, an American Lyric. And um, it's by Claudia Rankin. And it was published a few years ago. And it it's a book um, that particularly appeals to me for a couple of reasons. One, it's a mixture of photographs, of poetry, of lyrics, of, um, of her taking current events and some of the language that was actually used to describe primarily thinking about race, um, language that was used to describe these events and turning it into prose. So weaving it into her own narrative and her own personal experiences. And it is a phenomenal read for, for that reason. And and she's a, she's an amazing um, artist in general, but also because of the way she talks about identity and invisibility and how we see and describe um, things around us and the impact that has. So it is something I definitely encourage everyone to pick up and and take a read. Great, thanks. That is very interesting. I will definitely check that out. Um, well, I want to end on a bit of a shout out because our blog got a pretty nice review from one of our listeners this week. And I think we'd be remiss without giving a shout out to um, Eric Hartman, who wrote a really cool piece about what he's kind of taken away from the podcast um, and also did a bit of a review, review of On Being with Krista Tippett, which is another podcast that I also enjoy so um that's on the uh global sl blog on the campus compact website compact.org um eric's with haverford college and also just does a lot of work around global service learning that everyone should be checking out and as i'm saying this i'm realizing we obviously need to have him on the podcast so eric thank you and we will get that scheduled all right everybody have a great day Thank you, guys. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.